We've been working through this uh, series, uh, Nine Vital Signs. Uh, as, you've, as we've been going through it, what you'll have noticed is that although we are reflecting really on one verse in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, which is the fruit of the Spirit, and we're looking at each of those individual aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, you'll notice that we've done that by reflecting on other parts of the Bible, particularly by reflecting on other parts and aspects Uh, examples of the life of Jesus Christ. And I think that maybe for some of us that are just coming to terms with the Bible, that can be a helpful uh, thing to just dwell on for a moment. That one of the ways that we understand elements of the Bible is by reflecting on it in other parts of the Bible, building on our understanding as we see different aspects joining together and helping us to grow in our understanding of God, expressed to us in Jesus, made clear to us by his ongoing presence in the Holy Spirit. So we'll come to this uh, element of the fruit of the Spirit, reminding ourselves that it's not fruits, but rather it is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and so we can't look at this and say, well, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not bad in that particular area, so I'll focus just in that area. But rather, we will all be as those who are alive in Jesus, growing across the board. That doesn't mean that we reach uh, all of us the same level. Faith expressed by God grows in all of us at different rates, to different amounts. But at the same time, we will be seeking and we will be experiencing little by little growth and change in all of the areas. Now, the area that we're coming to this afternoon, we read, the fruit of the Spirit is, dot, 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 faithfulness. Faithfulness. That's the one that we're looking at uh, this afternoon. We have a paradoxical attitude, really, in our culture, don't we, towards faithfulness. On the one hand, we love it. We find value in it. We appreciate it. We expect it. On the other hand, uh, we fight against it. We live lives which aren't expressing it. And very often we actually applaud unfaithfulness. Isn't that a strange, complex world that we live in? That our culture at the same time is valuing and loathing certain aspects of God's word. I find that really interesting. God makes demands of us and we find that there are some parts that we love and some parts that we hate. That's great news because it means that the message of the Bible is going to challenge every single culture across this world in one way or another. And I think the aspect of faithfulness is a great challenge to us. It's been central, the idea of faithfulness, to many of the stories throughout history. You know, aspects of faithfulness emerging through the storyline so that we see finally triumphantly good prevailing because because faithfulness has been exercised. Historically we see that. More recently we see that. Probably one of my favourite films is Gladiator. And those of you who've seen it know that it's the fantastic story of uh, Maximus the Gladiator who was a Roman uh, general, 
uh, who was... Um, he was really loved by Marcus Aurelius and he was trusted for the sake of Rome and because of the love of Marcus Aurelius to take on the leadership of Rome after Mark, the death of Marcus Aurelius. And then his son Commodus, who murders his father, basically tries to get rid of Maximus. But what we see emerging through that story is the faithfulness of Maximus. Emerging is his faithfulness to Marcus Aurelius, his faithfulness to the idea of Rome, his faithfulness to the idea of his family. We see that, those of you who've seen it, that's key to the story. That faithfulness in those three aspects is essential. He finally emerges victorious precisely because he has held on to that. Now if we think about that, we maybe begin to get a little bit of a handle into this idea of faithfulness. We see that, in the case of Maximus, what he believed was borne out in the way he lived. He believed in something and therefore he acted in a particular way. That belief in something engendered faithfulness to it. He believed in the message of Marcus Aurelius. He believed in the vision of Rome. He believed in the love of his family, and that caused him to live that out. That is really important when we think about faithfulness, because the reality is that we can express faithfulness to good things and to bad things. You know, we can express faithfulness to the vigilante motorcycle gang. We can express faithfulness to that. It's not a good faithfulness, but we can express faithfulness to it. The omerta, if you've heard of the omerta, the code of silence. The omerta is the key element of the mafia, that code of silence. We can express faithfulness to that. But it's not a good faithfulness, is it? So when we read here that one of the fruit of the Spirit is growing faithfulness, we need to understand what that really means in terms of the Bible, don't we? Because it's easy for us to think, well, faithfulness is just, if you like, a moral commitment to the people around me. We can have moral commitments to people around us which are immoral. We need to understand that we can get ourselves in a situation where we are immorally committed to somebody on what we believe to be a moral crusade. That is not what the Bible is talking about when we see this kind of faithfulness described. So what does it mean? And what's more, as soon as we start talking about faithfulness, the word in the Greek is Pistus, faithfulness, it's connected to faith. <laughs> there is an inseparable link in Bible language between faithfulness and faith. It is faithfulness in the context of faith. What does faith mean when the Bible starts talking about faith, as opposed to faith in our general cultural 
ideas. Well, we read in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it gives us a definition of what faith means in Bible terms. And then it gives us a whole stream of uh, descriptions, pen pictures, historical uh, illustrations of people who have expressed just that faith. Hebrews chapter 11, go home and read it this evening if you want to, you can see that account of faith. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 11, now faith is, it's a great way of opening up a description is, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for and in assurance of what we do not see. So the first thing is, it's connected to hope. Therefore, it's connected to the, if you like, the overall stream of the message of the Bible. It's connected to something which is looking forward, anticipating, hoping, not without, not that kind of, when we use the word hope, in our culture we think hope, don't we? I kind of hope it happens. It's not what the Bible means. The Bible means looking forward to something that we know and are sure is going to happen. That's hope. It's a confidence in the future. But secondly, it's a confidence in something that we do not see. We can't see what we are hoping in. And the writer of the Hebrews goes on to describe a whole series of Old Testament characters who did not see Jesus and yet hoped in Jesus. They had the confidence that the promises of God were going to be fulfilled. They hoped looking forward. So when we think about that, the opportunity, the confidence, the the idea that we can hope in something that we cannot see, what does that mean? engender in us I think and we've been looking at this haven't we what does hope defeat or what do each of the sorry what does do each of the aspects of the fruit of the spirit defeat I think faithfulness defeats skepticism that skeptical mindset I only believe what I can see that Mindset is, you know, prove it to me. You know, it's a sunny day. Actually, it's quite amusing sat in this room, isn't it, saying it's a sunny day. That takes real faith to believe it's a sunny day with no windows. But, you know, some people, I was chatting to somebody, people, in just a person in just this past week, who said, I'm the kind of person that if you tell me it's sunny, I'll go outside and check that it's sunny, even though I can look out the window. That's just the kind of person I am. I'm sceptical about everything. I think that's a really dangerous and ultimately soul-destroying place to be. Sceptical to that level is soul-destroying. Because ultimately what it means is your hope is rested only on what you can observe. It has no hope outside of you. It's all about you. 
If that's where you are, if you're the kind of person who says, you know, faithfulness, faith, not for me, I'm a skeptic. I'll believe what I can see. I'll believe what I can assess. It ultimately depends on you. Victor Hugo, not exactly the epitome of theological commentators, but he said this, a faith is a necessity to a man. Woe to him who believes in nothing. What do we believe in? What do we have faith in? In other words, if we are going to have faith and therefore faithfulness to something, what is it that we're going to commit to? We're going to have a look at this particular section of the Bible because I think it answers those questions for us. Mark chapter 9 and verse 2, Jesus is with a few of his disciples, a small number. If you remember, Jesus has a great number of followers a great number of disciples. Outside of that, he has a huge number of people who are following on. That smaller number of followers we could call disciples, in fact, in uh, Acts chapter, early part of Acts, uh, the book of Acts, we see that there are a significant number, 120, who you would consider followers of Jesus. Then there is a smaller group, which are the disciples, the appointed by Jesus, who are the twelve, and then we see on many occasions that Jesus identifies a really close group, Peter, James, and John. Repeated occasions he identifies these three men, and he draws them into a very close relationship with him, and he actually uh, opens out aspects to them that he doesn't share with others. And here we see he's with Peter, James and John and he leads them up to a very high mountain and where they are alone. So all of the other disciples, it would seem, are bottom of the mountain, maybe in the town, wherever we don't know. What we do know is they're not with Jesus and these three other disciples. And then in a moment something happens. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. That is an astounding statement. It's astounding in lots of ways. Firstly, it's astounding simply because of what happens. What we see at that moment in time is, if you like, a little window or a veil being taken away or a little insight, however we want to describe it, there is a small opportunity for us to see for a short period of time the reality of Jesus. Jesus born of a virgin, grew up as a child, appointed to his ministry at baptism, living a life which to to all intents and purposes up to this point looks like just any other human being except that he does miraculous things on repeated occasions 
And then at this point in time, there is a little window that gives us an insight into the true divine nature of Jesus. Remarkable. But what's more remarkable is that even at this point in time, all of the other disciples had to observe that, not by sight, but by faith. Isn't that remarkable? All of the other disciples, Jesus could have done this at any moment in time. He could have done this in the middle of Jerusalem on the temple steps if he had so wished. He could have summoned, as he does, Elijah and Moses, two of the great historical leaders of the Old Testament people of God. He summoned them to him. He could have done this at any time. And yet he does it for three He's making the point, even at this moment in time, yes, there is a window where there will be witnesses who will be able to say what they saw, but at this moment, during this time, your embracing of me is dependent on your faith. It is faith in me. I think that that is actually remarkable. Jesus does not feel the pressure to prove himself. He is who he is. He doesn't need to prove himself to those in Jerusalem. He says, I am who I am. I will display myself to those who I have appointed to, be, to see it and to witness it. And everybody else needs to embrace that by faith. Now, to be honest, if you or I were seeking to create a world-changing movement, if the message of Jesus was simply to create a world-changing movement, the reality is that he would have done this in front of as many people as he possibly could, but he did not. Because the very basis of Christian, the Christian faith is just that. It is faith. And we see Jesus here displaying himself, the reality of his divine nature, to a small number of those followers. An unseen nature. An unseen nature which convinces us of a character and a person of Jesus which makes sense of other parts of the Bible. Later on in the Hebrew, book of Hebrews, we read this. We read that part of Jesus' role, part of his activity, is continuing now. We read this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us firm, hold firmly to the faith we profess. In other words, that very one who was, for a short time, revealed as the Son of God on that mountain, has then, in the future, in future months, ascended into heaven so that he might continue the work of being our representative, our go-between, between the Father and us, because he describes himself 
as the high priest. That's what a high priest does. He stands in the gap between God and man. And that's what Jesus does. And he can do it because of who he is. Now believing that takes faith. Believing that is a step of faith. It's not a blind faith. That's really important. It's not a blind faith. It is a faith which is based on historical eyewitness accounts. But it is still a step of faith because we cannot see it. But in understanding who Jesus is, having faith in him, understanding and embracing who he is, then we are changed. So how does that work? Well, that's the first account. We see this picture of this incredible event where Jesus is transfigured on the mountainside. Within a few minutes, all of that changes. It's, I love the way the Bible accounts bring a sense of life's reality <laughs> within a moment in time. One moment the disciples are on the mountainside seeing this heavenly vision. The next moment they're down in the valley arguing with some of the religious leaders. They come down from the mountain and we see that they're in, engaged in uh, a problem, in a challenge, in an argument. They, verse 14 says, they came, down, uh, came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed and, with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. And then we get this story that emerges. This man has brought his son to the disciples of Jesus, those who are not up on the mountainside. It would appear as though this son, it, it's described as having a spirit. It's generally accepted that it would appear as though this young boy or this young man had epilepsy. He was foaming at the mouth. He was going rigid. He was going into convulsions. In other words, there's, if you like, there's, there's two perspectives that are going on here. That's my understanding. There is the understanding of the reality of his condition and then there is a greater understanding of the challenge of, of, of good and evil and, and uh, all of those bigger dimensions that are going on. Jesus comes to this situation and the disciples have not been able to heal this young boy. Have you been let down? By people who are Christians. That's where this man was. He's brought his boy to the disciples of Jesus. Who in the past months have been healing people. And they've not been able to heal this young boy. He had every opportunity at this point. To be disappointed and to walk away. And then Jesus appears. And he turns to Jesus. Have you been let down by people who are Christians? Let me say. You are very likely to be let down. By Christians. Not 
because they are uniquely Christians and therefore likely to let you down. (laughs) Rather, because they're just human beings filled with failure like everybody else. But the Father turns to Jesus at that moment in time who does not let him down. Can I encourage you? If you're feeling discouraged, Jesus will not let you down. Perhaps we ought to be challenged to say, are we displaying Jesus in a way which does not let other people down? Absolutely. But Jesus will not let you down. Do not walk away. Do not throw it all in because somebody has let you down. Turn to Jesus. Jesus engages with this father. Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive him out and the, and the spirit and drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. There is an indignant attitude in Jesus at this point. In other words, from his perspective, the failure for this to be realized was because they had not fully embraced him. That's key to that verse. Jesus brings the, they bring the boy to Jesus When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus replied. What does faith in Jesus look like in terms of faithfulness? What does faithfulness look like in terms of faith? This man has expressed faith in Jesus because he's then brought the boy to Jesus even though Jesus' disciples couldn't heal him. What does faithfulness look like? If you can... Jesus replied, everything is possible for, he, for him who believes, Jesus said. In other words, if you are ultimately faithful, if you really believe, of course he will be healed. Now, there's all sorts of issues there which we're not going to get into. Apart from this, because I think this is the greatest statement of faithfulness that we can take a hold of, that we can embrace, carry away with us, and implement on a day-to-day basis. Because the man's response is this. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That is faithfulness. Help me overcome my unbelief. I think in that sentence... This man expresses the dilemma that Paul expresses in this inner character which is continuously battling 
On the one hand, I believe. On the other hand, I find that I don't live out my beliefs. I find that there's a battle going on. I'm not living the way I ought to live. I I can say I believe, but then I'm challenged with unbelief. And he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that sounds like a circular argument, doesn't it? Why, Why would you possibly say to the person that you're believing in, help my unbelief? Why? Of course, that's just a circular argument. Of course he's going to help you to believe. doesn't mean that it's right. Apart from what happened just a few minutes ago on the mountain. Apart from what happened on the mountainside. Because if Jesus is who he is, then it is not a circular argument to say, I believe help my unbelief. It is a statement to say, my belief in you has come from you, therefore, please help me to grow in belief and defeat my unbelief. Do you see the difference? It is not a circular argument if Jesus is who he is. Because that changes everything. What does faithfulness look like? What does growing in faithfulness, what does the fruit of the Spirit look like in terms of this? It means I believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, my own personal Savior, the one in whom I rest for all of eternity, the one who has borne my guilt and shame, And has carried my sin and has rose triumphantly. I believe that in him I will find hope and life for eternity. I believe that. And therefore because I believe that. Because I have faith in that. I will be changed day to day. So that I will look and become more faithful to what I have faith in and when I become more faithful to what I have faith in I will change in terms of my attitudes behaviors and reactions to people around me see that when I have faith in Jesus and when it grows and when my faith is built up I will become more faithful in my actions. Now listen, this is really important. There are times when faith in Jesus looks like unfaithfulness to people around us. Jesus said that this is going to happen. There's going to be times when you are going to be faced with dilemmas of choice. Will you follow me and be faithful to me or be faithful to those around you, and sacrifice relationship with me. And there are times when my faithfulness to Christ will mean that I look unfaithful to the world around. That's why the first Christians in the first century were killed in huge numbers. Because they were not faithful to the Roman gods. 
They were not faithful to the society and the culture around them. They looked unfaithful. But their faithfulness to Christ meant that they were willing to bear the cost of being unfaithful to those around. You see that? That's so important. There are times when our faithfulness looks unfaithful. And it costs. But faithfulness to Christ is faith worked out in hope for eternity, isn't it? If Jesus is who he claims to be, if he has truly borne my sin, if he truly has secured an eternal inheritance for me, then faith in him is a safe place to be. Faith in him will cause me to change in ways to those around me that will seem different. So what does faithfulness look like? Well, right at the very beginning, we said that faithfulness looks like an absolute commitment to something, which means that we live it out. Now do you see the connection between faith and faithfulness? A real commitment to what we believe in Jesus means that we will be faithful. Verse 23 of Galatians chapter 5 says this. Against such things there is no law. In other words, you're not doing something which it's unlawful to do. Rather, you are living out a faithful expression of humanity in compassion and kindness and faithfulness, which will be lived out to the good of others around us. Fruit of the Spirit is not a moral code. But faith in Jesus Christ results in faithfulness which has moral implications. And life-changing demands. It has to. But when we have faith in that Jesus, then it will do. Willingly, gladly, thankfully. Accepting that I'm going to be fighting it out. I don't want to be faithful. (laughs) And yet little and little by little, little by little, little by little, I will become little by little more faithful than I once was. And that means that one day, if the journey is, you know, if the graph of change in this world is is half a point improvement by the end of my journey in life, I know that when I see Jesus, it will go off the scale. The change will be so dramatic. It will be immeasurable. My commitment to him on a day-to-day basis, if we can talk about day-to-day and eternity, will be incomparable to my commitment to him now. My expression of love and faithfulness to those around me in eternity in the new heaven and the new earth, will be incomparable 
to the little changes that are made now. Because that's what faith in him says will happen. Ultimately, it's about the defeat of self, isn't it? Faith in him is the defeat of self. And when self is defeated, then everybody else around feels the benefits. If faithfulness is based on faith in him, it's only worth it because he is the one who's been ultimately faithful. And we thank God in Jesus Christ that that's exactly who he is.